So my name is Marty Seven. Of course, you know my brother, Greg Seven. I live in Marin County, California. I recently, on the 18th of December, had a double lung transplant. You had a double lung transplant, and how are you doing right now? I'm doing wonderfully. Phenomenal. How well I'm doing. You haven't had an easy time of it over the last, especially over the last couple of years. Tell me how you got to the place where you needed a double lung transplant. I know you had COVID, but the trouble started before that. I was diagnosed with a interstitial lung disease October 31st, 2020. How did that come about? Is it just one of those things or did something happen that uh, caused you to uh, get that diagnosis? I had been extremely short of breath for a handful of years prior and becoming more and more and more fatigued. We had moved from San Diego back to the Bay Area and changing positions. My new internist, COVID had started, so it was initial appointment on Zoom. Caught on something I said about the fatigue, said she wanted to run some more tests, and they did a lung x-ray, and that's how they diagnosed the interstitial lung disease. Good thing you said whatever it was you said. It's actually a very funny story. I wanted to get all my health care at UCSF, so I, I went onto the website, and there's out of 42 internists, there's only one internist taking new appointments. My head said, how good is this going to be, right? So it'll get me <laughs> in the system. And she is just the most fabulous doctor, internist, just so engaged, and and she picked up on something I said and led to the diagnosis. Did you start treatment right away, and how soon after that did COVID hit? So COVID was, we were several months into COVID when I was diagnosed. So started out, I was referred to a pulmonologist at UCSF, and I was at the stage of the disease where it's just kind of observed regular appointments with a pulmonologist and monitor my breathing. The typical case of interstitial lung disease is it runs along basically sort of a steady baseline until there's some kind of trauma to the lung pneumonia, something that gets into the lung, and then there's a drop-off, and then there's no ability to recover, and that becomes a new baseline. I was concerning because my lung function drop-off was very steep from the very beginning of diagnosis. So I was diagnosed the end of October. By the middle of December, I was on 24-hour supplemental oxygen. At the same time in the middle of December, this is 2020, I contracted COVID, was hospitalized a week because of the lung, given rodenzivir, which actually made it a very mild case of COVID. But th- there's some discussion of whether the drop-off was due to COVID. The continued drop-off trend being so steep was due to COVID. But I was already, prior to being diagnosed with COVID, my the disease was progressing very quickly inside of my lung. So I guess you could say that the COVID certainly didn't help. That's a great way to put it. It didn't help, but it's not believed that, that the COVID was the reason for the rate of decline in my lung. So what did they think caused it? Could they pinpoint it? So ultimately upon biopsy of my lungs after they were removed, I have pulmonary fibrosis. They were unsure because initially because the scarring didn't match pulmonary fibrosis. Pulmonary fibrosis has three primary causes. One is uh, rheumatoid arthritis. Two is environmental exposure. I have neither of those. Approximately 25% of the cases are undiagnosable. So not smoking-related, not environmental-related. They don't know how it happens. It just happens. You hadn't smoked since 1996, is that right? So it wouldn't be that, I wouldn't think. No, but it's not COPD. It's not emphysema. So based on the scarring of the lungs, they know people want to fixate on smoking. But based on the scarring of the lungs, they know it is not smoking-related. 
Going back a lot further than that, your brother told me that you had a type of meningitis, and that was many years ago. Do the doctors and do you think that that was something that was sort of lying in wait to pounce all these years later in your life? Pat, that's a great question, of which I've done a significant amount of research. The lung team, the pulmonologists, don't think that either are interrelated. I was given a drug for that meningitis, huge amounts of that drug over a nine-month period intravenously, a significant amount of research that short-term use of that drug has been shown to cause pulmonary fibrosis. But there's no research over a long timeline that is related to pulmonary fibrosis. What do you think? I don't know what to think. I've talked to a number of the authors of the research papers. They tend to think there is. There's no research to tie the two together over a timeline as long as 40-some years ago to today. Exactly. as a long time so, ago, right? So I think at this point, it doesn't really matter what I exactly. think. Uh, I, I exactly. I have pulmonary fibrosis and yeah. I've had a lung transplant. I think. And was there any way that you could have made it with one lung? Actually, no. When the donor organization contacts a hospital that these set of lungs look good for me, the transplant team then gets all the information they can and they make a conditional approval to accept the lungs. Then they contact me have me come to the hospital, but they don't agree to accept the lungs. So UCSF sent their own surgical team to remove the lungs. Until they get their eyes on the lungs, that's when they say that, yes, we totally accept the lungs because they could get there and there could be something wrong with the lungs. And you could be waiting there thinking, oh, great. And then you have to go back home. And then then there's a name for that. They call that a dry run. So So that happens. In my case, I was extremely fortunate. It wasn't a dry run. Oh, good, good, good. Is there a national registry that you have to get on? Is, is it like getting a heart transplant, et cetera? It's actually the same for all organs. It's a national 5013C, handles the complete organ donation list for the United States. So there's one list, and then there's 52 separate donor organizations across the country. Each has their own geographic region. For lungs, for example, in UCSF, they like to receive lungs less than 250 miles from the hospital. How long were you on the list? Um, Amazingly, six days. Wow. You are living right, Marty. And lungs, there's not the demand for lungs like kidneys or livers. The average wait time at UCSF for lungs is four to seven months. But six days is like unheard of. So all the planets were aligned. The lungs that you got, is there any way of you knowing who they came from or how that happened? Or would you rather not know? Or how does that work? I would love the opportunity to express my sheer gratitude to the donor family. The donor organizations uh, protect the donor family's anonymity. So what the suggestions are is that I wait about a year, and then they would encourage me, if I'd like to know, to write a letter to the donor's family. And I submit it to UCSF, to the transplant unit, they submit it to the donor organization, wherever geographically the donor was located. They will then inquire if the family even wants to receive the letter. And my understanding from other organ recipients, there's a significant amount of families that don't want any contact. And there's some that have started relationships with the donors. It's entirely up to the donor family if they want to receive the letter, if they want to have any contact, and if they do what that contact looks like. Are you going to reach out, do you think? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. They gave me the winning lottery ticket. Does the donor have to be a certain age? 
and blood type? Lung transplant, yes, it's blood type, it's antibody type. You know, if you've had transfusions, which I haven't had any transfusions. And then it's also, interestingly enough, it's chest size. As I understand the breakdown, I'm a big bone guy. Bigger lungs are more prevalent than smaller lungs. I happen to have type A blood type, which is a relatively common blood type, and then no antibodies. I was a relatively easy match. How long does can a lung survive after death? I, I don't know specifically the answer to that. When, when organ donations are taking place, there's eight donatable organs. Each of us has eight donatable organs. I assume that if they're donating an organ, they're donating probably all eight organs. So if somebody's completed a donor card, that makes to, sense. To donate and, yeah. and, and I'm going to give my little commercial thing here. If, if people are not donors, there's a significant shortage of donors across the country. There's people waiting for kidneys and livers for years. And I equate the analogy that if I was driving by a house on fire and I knew I stopped and ran in, I could save eight people. There'd be no hesitancy to run in and save eight people's lives. And a lot of states make it very easy, like in Pennsylvania, you just sign up when you get your driver's license or when you renew your license. That's correct. California's the same thing. I've carried for years a, a little, now I think it's electronic. I wonder if you could donate those lungs if uh, something You know what, happened. that's a great question. I don't know. We should ask. We have to ask. Uh, you know what, I'm very curious. I'm going to be in lung lab tomorrow. I'm going to ask that question. So, that's so, a great question. Yeah. So you waited six days. You make it to the, you get the call, you make it to the hospital, and then I presume you get the thumbs up. Then what happens? I would think that they'd have to take ribs out, especially for a double. No, there's two parts to the answer to your question. So the lung transplant team wants me on the table, opened up and ready for the lungs, because the lungs have the shortest shelf life of the organ. And logistically, it's very interesting that all eight organs are not necessarily going to UCSF. So it could be eight different hospitals. So you have eight different surgical teams standing around waiting for their turn to harvest the organs. So I am now waiting in the hallway for surgery for the go, because now the lung team is, is harvesting the organs. I'm in the hallway, the surgeon walks out, holds her thumb up and says, it's a go. So then they roll me in the operating room, they start pre-oping me, they put me to sleep. The organs now are on the way back to the hospital from location X. Because yeah. they won't even tell me where they're from. I'm open on the table when the lungs arrive at UCSF. And have they removed your old lungs? I don't believe so. Until the new lungs are there. Right. Yeah. And the surgery time from start to finish is eight hours. So they do a clamshell incision underneath my breast all the way across my chest. So they basically filleted me crossways. <laughs> And then they break the sternum to get the lungs in. Do you have different teams or is it the same team working for eight hours? It's the same team. The funny story I had about the lung surgeon and the surgeon I had founded the transplant unit at UCSF. She's done over 500 lung surgeries. She's been doing this for 19 years. She was uh, a very funny sort of mid-40s, mid-40s woman. She's in the room with me at two o'clock in the afternoon. The surgery scheduled for midnight. She says, I'm going to go home and take a little nap. I said, how do you do this? And she says, let me just tell you, there was a time I could do three of these in a day. And she says, now I'm a little older. I can only do two. <laughs> and you said, I don't know how to respond to that. <laughs> oh, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. I just, you know what? I said, go home and take your nap. <laughs> exactly. I'm fine with that. 
Do you have any memory of what happened during that long period of time when you were under? No. And then they kept me under for about two and a half days because you come out of surgery on a ventilator. And when you go on a ventilator, they induce unconsciousness. So I was out from Saturday morning, the uh, the 18th, until uh, approximately sometime midday on the 20th. So that's another euphemism for lost weekend, right? I mean, Yeah, that was absolutely a lost weekend. So how do they, A, bring you out of it, and B, start breathing on your own with so, the new lungs? So I just woke up. They didn't do anything to bring me out. I just oh. woke up. Uh, and I'm on a ventilator. And that was actually the most uncomfortable part of the process has been the ventilator. I'm tethered. My hands, my wrists are tethered to the bed so I don't yank the tube out. I got to be awake before they can take the tube out some period of time. And as I recall, I was on the ventilator. Once you wake up, my vital signs were good. My breathing was good. I stayed on the ventilator awake just a handful of hours till they could. they were confident my lungs were good. Then they went to a step-down oxygen machine which is sort of like a CPAP mask, for four hours. And that came off right at four hours. And then I was on small amount of supplemental oxygen until I was released from the hospital. Are you a, a religious guy? I'm not a religious guy, but I'm a spiritual guy. What were you feeling through all of this? I would think that some people would panic, but was that you? No, I've really been, from the beginning, that, I'm really, that I've really been powerless over this that I'm sick and all I can do here is follow the doctor's instructions. I've really been okay whether I got a transplant, whether I qualified or I didn't get a transplant. I've really sort of been emotionally and spiritually okay with whatever's happened. I guess that's the best way to, yeah, I guess that's the best way to approach it because you may not make it. I mean, if you panic or if you're worried or overly concerned. Yeah, and there's been there's really been nothing in the process, nothing that's caused me to panic, other than the prognosis was without a transplant, I had less than two years to live. And it was just like I was resigned to that, I was, that I was okay with that. Of course, I, I was hopeful to get a transplant, but, but my, my life, emotionally and spiritually, my life didn't depend on getting the transplant. Uh, I had so much I wanted to do, and I wanted to do it, with whatever uh-huh. time I had left. Do you feel like you're breathing the same when you inhale and exhale? Is the process the same or is it, how, how is it different if it is different? I'm less short of breath. Probably the first thing is I went from oxygen in December 2020, supplemental oxygen, 24 hours, seven days a week, wow. to two liters. Mm. By surgery, a year later, December 2021, I was on six liters of oxygen. So I was extremely short of breath, and my life had narrowed, really, that my primary thing every day was to walk to keep the lung muscles from apathing. And that was the only thing I could do every day, that and get out of bed and come downstairs. I would be like noon before I could walk. I'd walk a little over a mile very slowly. I'd come back, and then I'd need to nap. That's what a typical day was. A typical day is not much different, but my breathing, I can breathe so much deeper. I have not had any supplemental oxygen now in six weeks. My O2 readings are what they would consider perfect. Yesterday morning, I was at 99. This morning, I'm at 98. 
they consider 95% plus perfect with no supplemental oxygen, just breathing room air. I'm significantly less winded. And now it feels like, and, and I had a huge amount of fatigue, really from lack of oxygen. Today, it feels like I'm recovering from surgery is why I'm fatigued. And every day, my energy level gets better. I walked yesterday, and I'm walking every day. It a relatively quick flip for me. I walked over two miles. Wow. That's excellent. Do you feel calm? You were spiritually okay with what was happening. Are you equally calm now, or are you more concerned that something could go wrong? I'm really sort of in the here and now, and I'm in today. I've had a couple of setbacks. It's just part of the process. You know, this is, this is not going to be, you know, this is medical. You know, this is not going to be, uh, the upward trajectory is not going to be a straight line. Yeah. You know, I made it out of the hospital in nine days. I was doing so well. They had me walking the second day after I had woken up. They let me go home in nine days. Normally, they expected to stay in the hospital 14 days. And then two days later, I was back in the hospital and then for another week. You know, I had a little setback. I had fluid building around the lung. But I had to go back and reinsert a chest tube. And then they can't release you with the chest tube in. It took a week to get the rest of the fluid out. You know, rejection, always a concern. You know, today I get to talk to you. Um, you know, I went in for blood work this morning. When uh, my wife's in the other room working, when she's done, we're going to go take a two-mile walk. We're going to go take a two-mile walk mid-afternoon. We go by, you know, and we're in San Francisco. We're going to walk down on the Embarcadero, our favorite coffee place. If, it's, if there's nobody on the patio, we'll go have a cup of coffee. Nice. That's a great day for anybody, let yeah. alone somebody who just had a, a double lung transplant. Do you go to rehab or do they come to you? Lung rehab? So there is no, so there is there no physical any. rehab oh, okay. except walking. And then I have a spirometer. I test every morning and then they have a, uh, I text once a week with the result, you know, that my breathing's getting better every day. So for six weeks after surgery, they require that I'm within 30 minutes of the hospital. So we're actually in San Francisco at an Airbnb. Nice. Yeah. And then we have, we have about another eight days here. Is that considered sort of like your probationary period? Yeah, I guess that's a great way to look at it, the probationary <laughs> period. You're on probation. You're a probie. And I found out when, when, when I had the fluid on the lungs, you know, the lung transplant team at UCSF really has this down to an art. I have a 24-hour contact to a physician on the transplant team, partially because rejection's always a concern for the rest of my life. Uh, I'll be on immunosuppressant drugs the rest of my life. And part of that is even a cold, even the sniffles can lead to rejection. So when I was getting harder for me to breathe, in the evenings, I'm conversing with the doctor on the phone, and they said, you know, go to emergency. And that's what the six weeks is about, being close to the hospital. Because, you know, we live within 30 minutes of the hospital. But there's a lot of patients that don't necessarily live so close by. That's why the six weeks is, and I could see that when they, you know, you need to go to emergency and you need to go Yeah, now. of course. You have to, you can't mess around. In some ways, though, because we are in the pandemic, it sort of ramps you up to what you have to do to remain infection-free as a double lung transplant recipient. Sort of very interesting to me that the lifestyle changes that I'm going to need to do post-transplant. Anytime I go into large crowds, and this is prior to COVID, I, I should mask. Yeah. They've instructed me specifically 
to not knowingly be around anyone that's unvaccinated. You know, I have a couple of close friends that are unvaccinated. I may never be able to be see them again. You know, kind of so be it. You know, we'll talk on the phone. We'll Zoom. You, you know, my job here really is just to follow their instructions. What about the anti-rejection drugs? Do they have weird side effects like brain fog or anything like that? Not that I'm experiencing. You seem uh, real lucid they're, they're, to me. <laughs> uh, thank you. Um, it's, a, it's a prevagen. <laughs> there you go. So there's two concerns. I'll be on prednisone the rest of my life. That's oh. an anti-rejection. Right. And they're very concerned about body weight in the lung. So that's kind of a concern. And there's another and I, there's another uh, immune suppressant drug that causes me to shake. And I've also been introduced to a guy that I've become close to that had a double lung transplant five years ago. And he was shaking so bad, he couldn't eat with a fork. He had to eat with a spoon. His experience was, and what the lung team has told me, that that lasts about six months. It takes the body to get used to it. And what I'm noticing the last few days is actually the shaking has decreased a little bit. Wonderful. But if that's the worst it gets, I mean, that's yeah, small price to pay. Yeah, you'll take it, right? Yeah. Absolutely. We started to mention earlier was the thing that's really interesting to me is there's been virtually no physical discomfort. That is weird, isn't it? And the physical discomfort has been really the incision. How large was yes. the incision? So it really, it literally goes across my chest. Yeah. One side to the other. Uh, it's been more discomfort. I mean, it's been a little pain. I, I've taken some pain pills, but very little pain medication, very little pain medication, other, other than a couple of Tylenol. You know, it would, it would seem in my head, they're going to they're gonna flay me. They filleted me sideways, split my sternum, put lungs in. There should be massive pain. One would think. They do. They, they numb the nerves. It takes six months for that totally to go away. So that may be part of the way reason there's no pain or very little pain or discomfort. But still, that's so interesting. What do they say for your prognosis? I mean, I've been reading, of course, about Howell Graham. He's uh, still alive 26 years after a double lung transplant. Wow. The national statistics are not great. They're great compared to not getting a transplant. Interestingly enough, UCSF statistics are significantly better than the national statistics. And of course, all I can go by is the percent experiences at UCSF, yes. is what their results are at UCSF. And it's interesting to me, uh, in my research, UCSF has got significantly better statistics than anywhere in the country. They also take harder cases. So at, UC, at UCSF last year, they had 100% one-year survival. Wow. And they're doing approximately 80, 80 lung transplants a year. The, the raw average is six and a half years. Not bad. There's a huge number of patients living 15 and 20 years. My friend is five years. His lungs are functioning perfectly. A lot of that has to do, and this is my assumption, is there some real lifestyle changes, eating changes, things that need to be done. There could be so much so difficult. How willing are you to, to adhere to those instructions? And your answer is very willing. Thank you very much. My whole thing here is just to do what you tell me to do. It sounds like you have a, a new lease on life. What do you plan to do now that this has come to pass? I, I've got kind of two parts to that, if I may. Sure, so, please. You, you know, I won the lottery. I don't know how else to describe this, but I won the lottery. And when I was diagnosed, I was getting ready to take up sailboarding. Oh. <laughs> the lung team has told me that I need to wait at least six months to my sternum is healed. I have the okay to sailboard. I'm going sailboarding. 
<laughs> and I told everybody in the hospital I'm going sailboarding. I'm going to invite everybody that had anything to do with me in the hospital to come watch my maiden voyage. Now, you plan to wear one of those inner tubes around your waist, right? <laughs> uh, you know what? I am not doing anything any different. And, I, I, you know, um, I, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an upper middle-aged guy. Uh, I don't need to go in the air and do backflips. I just want to go fast across the water. I have no doubt that you will do it. Anything yeah. else you want to talk about before we conclude? Uh, I, I really want to. I really want to do the commercial thing. That if you're not a donor, if anybody's listening, is not a donor. You know, it's painless to become a donor, and and you can save eight lives. And to me, the biggest hero that, that I've ever come around in my life is the donor who gave me the love. That's the definition of a hero. Here, here. If anyone out there is not a donor, please, please become a donor.